Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. So we are in the third week of our series, Be Like Jesus. We're going through a nine-week study of the book of Philippians. Some of you are in gathering groups, and I know that's going great. I'm really encouraged that we're diving into the Word together. Speaking of that, I want to get right to it. We're in Philippians 2 this morning. Gideon just read a portion of the text. We're actually going to go back to verse 1 now and look at this. As I was preparing this week, I was reading this, this first verse, and there's a series of if statements and these if statements are wondering if these things are actually true. They're, they're actually statements that are implying that what is being spoken, what is being written is true. And I felt like they needed a little crowd participation. So here's what we're going to do as I read this first verse. You are going to say amen at the end of each of these little if statements as I read them. Now this is going to stretch some of you a whole bunch. Some of you are very uncomfortable at the thought of actually saying amen in church like this. You're going to do it in the context of a group. It's okay. So I want you to be a little bit spontaneous this morning, and I want you with a hearty amen to tag each of these if statements. The first service today did really well. How about you? Let's see how we do it. Let's go to the Word. You should have your Bible with you. Open it up or Bible app. Follow along. The words are on the screens. We want to be a Bible-reading, note-taking church. So please dive in with us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Remember your part. Here we go. Ready? Therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Amen. Ooh, that was good. Okay, we're, we're, we're cooking. If any comfort from his love. Amen. If any common sharing in the spirit. Amen. Ooh, man, you got me going. If any tenderness and compassion. Amen. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Amen. I think we should stop there. So let's pause there. Okay, very good job, by the way. I'm impressed. We are an amen church after all. I like that. Amen. Amen. Preach it. So like-minded is the last little phrase that we we left off there. And I want to stop there for a moment. Like-minded. I'm going to say this, and, and I believe it's true. We live in mindless times. Mindless times. There are millions of people who are just sort of drifting through life. Millions of people drifting through life. By the way, if you're one of those people, if that hits you, and you're like, oh, man, I'm kind of drifting through life. He's talking to where I am. I was once one of those people who was just drifting through life mindlessly. So full disclosure, I get it. And, and what happens is there are people who are, who are just pro, prey to the, the, the media, manipulated by the media even, drifting through life, millions of people. And here's the thing, we hardly know it. We're hardly aware of it. Even Christians are unaware of the way that their thinking and their living is is wrapped around secular thinking. This is rampant in our culture today. Millions of people living mindlessly, mindless living. So here's why I'm telling you this. As I studied this text this week, of course, I, I look at different translations of the verses And when I went to the New King James Version, I'm going to show you this here in a moment, something stood out to me. 
about this passage. I want to show it to you. Okay, look at Philippians 2. This is the New King James Version. You're going to see some underlined words. I'm going to go really th- fast through this because I just read it, but, and we're going to read some more of it. But check this out, okay? If you go to verse 2, for instance, Paul, the apostle who is the author here, says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. He says, having the same of one mind. And then if you go to verse 3, it continues and it says, nothing should be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There's that word mind again. Jump down to verse 5. The, the apostle says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's four times in five verses the word mind appears. And it made me think about this mindless living that's happening in our world today. And the Bible addresses it. The Bible says, no, you should not be mindless in your approach to living. You should have a mind. In fact, there's a specific mind you should have, the mind of Christ. We're going to get into this, okay? This passage is about the development of a new mind. I'm talking about healthy thought patterns. I'm talking about healthy mental habits. How are your mental habits? How are your thought patterns? We're talking about godly thinking. We're talking about holy mental habits. That's what we're called to. We're called to actually resist the mindless thinking that's so rampant in the world today. You know, thoughts are important. Thoughts are important. So Lisa and I, my wife and I have these these friends. And they're at the stage of life where their kids have grown up and they've moved out of the house. And of course, a lot of couples, when you get to that point, when you get to the empty nester stage, some of you are like really hoping that comes quickly, I know. When you get to that empty nest stage, many people then will, will downsize, right? You move into a smaller house. Well, this couple did something completely opposite of that. They upsized. They went from a normal-sized house to a really big house, lots of rooms, lots of bathrooms. We're like, what's up with this? Well, they have been operating their house like it's a bed and breakfast. They don't charge people. But in six months of living there, they have had hundreds of guests at their house. Not 100, hundreds. They have a guest book that you fill out. It's kind of weird. Hundreds of people have come to their home. And you know why this is? Because they know that, that, that thinking, the way they think about life, influences how they live their life. And so their thoughts on life are totally shaped and radicalized. And so when they think about community, when they think about people being together, gathering together, they look at it differently. They think about it differently and it affects how they live their lives. They open their home to all these people who come in there and they spend time with them and cook meals. When they think about their possessions, their home, they don't see it as something that's just for them. They see it as something that's to be sacrificed in a certain sense, given to them, to, to bless other people with. The importance of thoughts, this begins with their thinking. They're thinking about community. They're thinking about their possessions. They live differently because of that. It's very convicting to me. It's a high bar. Living and thinking are connected. Some people think, oh, living and thinking, they're disconnected. I can have one kind of thought life, and I can live a totally different way. That'll catch up with you eventually, won't it? Some of you have found that to be true. When you think a certain way, eventually it'll catch up with you. Living and thinking are connected. The Apostle Paul, who once again, he's the author of this letter to the Philippians. 
inspired by God. He sees an essential connection between what is going on in our thoughts and what is going on in our lives. Listen, the two cannot be separated. We're talking about having a new mind in this passage, not living mindlessly. And so to make it really practical for us, as you think about your thinking and the way you're living your life, I mean, think about this. Don't you want to deal with the sin that's present in your life, the brokenness, the habits you've got? Well, I'm suggesting to you that there's something about your mind. You can't live mindlessly if you want to deal with your sin. That's what the scripture is telling us. Do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want to be a mature Christ follower? Do you want to be more like Jesus? That's what this series is called. Listen, a change of mind will mean a change of life. A change of mind will mean a change of life. I want to talk about this just for a moment more before we go back to the text. Here's Romans 12.2. This is one of those scriptures to have in your Rolodex of scriptures that you can call on. It's a big one. Listen to this. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't live mindlessly. Don't just live and, and, and do whatever the culture dictates to you. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, of your mind. Let's talk about a new mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Listen, a new mind is at the heart of this text we're looking at in Philippians 2 today. We're talking about a renovated mind. We're talking about a rehabilitated mind. We're, we're talking about a, 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 a revitalized, a, a reconditioned mind. We're talking about a mind that is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not an academic exercise. This isn't that kind of mind expansion. This is a spiritual exercise. So let's get into this. Are you ready? I think someone needs to hear this today. I believe that I needed to hear this this week. And I think we need to be challenged in terms of how we're living. Are you living mindlessly? Listen, there's, there's a passage here that's speaking to the power of a transformed mind. Don't you want that new mind? Let's take a look at how we can get a hold of that new mind through Christ. Look, we're going to look at the what of the new mind. We're going to look at the how of the new mind. And then we're going to look at the who of, of the new mind. Let's start with the what. What does a new mind look like? I'll take you to verse 2, back to Philippians 2. Verse 2 says this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Okay, so here we are. Let's talk about what a new mind looks like. And the first thing we see is this. It looks like this, same love. You see that? Be of, be of one mind, like-minded, having the same love. Look, there is no variation of love for one another in the church. No variation of love. In other words, in other words, the person who doesn't look like you, there's no variation of love in the church. The person who doesn't think like you, there's no variation of love in the church. The, the person who lives in a different neighborhood than you do. There is no variation of love in the church. This is how Jesus loves us, doesn't he? Jesus loves us without 
variation. And so the very first marker that we see of the new mind is this, that there is the same love among, and I'm talking to people who are part of the church family. There's no variation of love. That's a high bar. We've got to grow in that way. We've got to be a people as believers, specifically here at Christ Church at Grove Farm. We've got to be the kind of people who have the same love. No variation of love. No one above it. No one below it. We're all in it together. So there's no variation of love. The same love. He goes on. He tells us what else it looks like. He says, being uh, one in spirit and of one mind. One in spirit and one mind. My little word study this week taught me that these phrases literally mean the same soul. Being one in spirit, one in mind. It means being the same soul. That's the description of the church here. That we would be the same soul, one souled as it might be. One soul, not just coming around each other and caring about each other, paying lip service to that. No, this is unity that is intimate. This is unity that is seamless. It's like a great marriage. By the way, I would, I would pray and hope that all the marriages that are represented in this church family would be the kind of marriages that are one soul, same soul. And look, that gets beyond the the kind of movies you enjoy watching or your favorite restaurants that you share. One sold is the product of going through difficult matters together, sacrificing for each other, enduring trials and tribulations together, covering for one another. Whenever there's, there's difficulty or trouble or weakness that's represented in a person's life, How do you become one soul? It just doesn't happen. It happens as you submit and you surrender to one another. This is what we're to look like. What does it look like to be of one mind? It looks like people who are one soul. This is to be the mark of our fellowship. You've been hearing me say recently, if you've been around here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, I've been talking about the church as a family of families. I like that. It's a family of families. I believe that's the vision for us to grow into, that we would be a family of families. And a family of families has one love, the same love, no variation, and it's one soul. We're so wrapped together. We're so tight. We're so close. It's like we have one soul. Let me ask you a question. Make this practical. When is the last time that you invited someone to your house for a meal. Now, I know we've had COVID and the pandemic, so maybe that throws the answer off, but we go before that even. When is the last time you had someone to your home for a meal, specifically from this church? You say, no, we've got to spend time together. Because how are we going to grow in unity? How do we grow one soul? How, How do we become the same soul? How do we have the same love for one another if we don't spend time together? And learn the stories and and learn the experiences we've had and how God has worked in our lives. Look, that might be your step this week. That might be the thing that God is saying. He might be saying to you, you know what? After church, when I see that person, I'm going to say, would you come over to our house for for supper? We'd love that. We want to spend time together with you. This is how you grow to be one soul. We also find out in verses 3 and 4 what else it looks like to have this new mind. So the first thing we see is this unity. But then in verses 3 and 4, you see this. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, 
value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. First of all, what, what Paul addresses here is selfish ambition and vain conceit. Isn't it hard to imagine this would be present in the church? Selfish ambition? Vain conceit? No, no, it couldn't be, right? No, it's always been present. We always deal with these kind of things. And listen, our, our life together, this family of families, should not be characterized by action that puts self or selfish agendas first. You may have to examine yourself about this. You may be saying, oh, well, I, don't, I wish we did this differently at the church, or I don't like how we do that. Listen, we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That is the challenge. It's not about getting our own way, and that goes for me. It's not about getting our own way or getting the recognition that we think we deserve. It's not about selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here's what he says it's about. It's about valuing others. And this is more than just thinking that someone's better than me. It's more than that. This is making the interests of others as important to us as our own. That's what it means when it talks about making and not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others. We are making the interests of others as important as our own interests. Specifically, as a church, I'd say this. We need to consider this when we think about the next generation. We think about reaching people in, in, the, in their teens and in their 20s. We absolutely need to be thinking about, you know what? It's not us looking to our own interests, but it's us looking to the interests of others. We desire to see a generation that we raised up who will love the Lord, who will serve Him. And we want to do whatever it takes to reach them. We will stop at nothing. That has to be our mindset. This is what it looks like to have the new mind. The new mind is a unified mind. It's a mindset that's sacrificial. This is what it looks like. Now let's talk about how we develop such a mind. How do we develop a new mind? Let's go back to verse 1. Let me take you there. You did such a great job of the amens the first time we read it. Let's listen to this again now. Here's verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, God's love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, I'll stop there. It's talking about the, a, a triune God here. There's a Trinitarian feel to this opening verse. It's talking about Father through His love, Son through, through, through His unity, and Spirit through the sharing of the Spirit. It's Trinitarian in nature. And what it's reflecting to us is this. Knowing God is a community project. How, how do we get this new mind? Well, knowing God, having His mind, it's a community project. It's something that happens in the context of the fellowship, the family of believers. That's why family of, a fam family of families is so important to us. We must live together. Listen, God is one. Three in one. Father, Son, Spirit. And He has modeled this intimate fellowship for us. And so as we fellowship with this triune God, we do it together. And, and this leads to us living one-minded. This leads to us living one-souled. How do we do it? We do it through fellowship together. The family of God, the people of God together. That's why these gathering groups are so important. 
Because we wa- we've got to be together. As we seek God together, we grow in one-mindedness and one-souledness. Listen, if you're distanced from the church community, if you're here today, you're like, this is the first time I've been here forever. Or, or if you're listening to this, or if you know someone who's distanced from Christian fellowship, look, to claim to love Jesus, but live at a distance from the church, that's a contradiction. I mean, to love Jesus, to know God, demands that we serve and love the church. Imperfections and all. How, how do we get this mind? It's not just you going in your closet. That's important. You praying as an individual. You reading the scriptures as an individual. Absolutely. But listen, it's a community project. But I will bring it to you as a, as a person right now, and that's this. Are you united with Christ? Listen, if you're united with Christ, then this mind is yours. You hear me? If you're united with Christ, this mind is, is yours. Here's how it works. When you repent of your sins, when you believe in the gospel, the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died paid for sins, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. When you believe the gospel and you repent of your sins, listen, all of salvation's benefits belong to you. All of salvation's benefits. That includes a new nature. It means you're declared righteous. It means you're adopted into the family of heaven. It means you have a new mind. In fact, here, listen, along with this, this new mind, some people here need to stop acting like you're in your sins when you're in Christ. That's no longer reality. You are now in Christ. That's part of the benefit of salvation. So listen, are you unified with Christ? This mindset, this thing that in him we have a new mind makes decision-making at the point of temptation more clear. So in other words, how am I going to spend my money? I'm tempted to use it this way. I'm tempted to go and blow a whole wad of cash on this. And that moment of temptation, this new mind will affect how you make a decision. It'll affect how you watch TV. It'll affect how you use the computer. It'll affect all these things because you have this new mind in Jesus. So again, to make it personal, are you united with Christ? Listen, we must be united as Christ as a people. There's no doubt that's, that's one of the ways. How do, we, how do we get this mind? It's together. Are you United with Christ. Listen, this may be the day. In fact, I would suggest this is the day to get serious about Jesus. What are you waiting for? To repent of your sin and to say, you know what? I need Jesus. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to go in a new direction. I want a fresh start. I want to turn my life and go in a new way. To repent of your sins and to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he died to pay for sins. Not just any sins, my sins. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe it all. And I want this new mind. It begins there. Listen, it, this could be your moment. 
This might be the thing you need to hear today more than anything is, it's time to get serious about Jesus and be united with Christ. What's missing in my life, the reason I'm living mindlessly is because I'm not united with Christ. I don't have this new mind. I need this new mind because the ways of the world, the ways of mindlessness come to an end. And I know some of you know that from a painful uh, reality in your own lives. You've experienced, you know what happens. You know what the end of the mindless life is. This is your moment. Are you united with Christ? So we see what the new minded life looks like. It's united. It's, it's bathed in love. It's sacrificial. We also, we also see how we get it. How do we get it? And fellowship with one another. It all begins with Jesus. It begins with this triune God. Now, let's talk about the who. The who part of it. Who is our example? You know the answer to this already. You know the example, the answer to this already. I'll tell you this. Uh, as we think about Jesus as our example. I was thinking this week about it. And I remember those bracelets. I think they're still around. The WWJD bracelets, right? Listen, th those are cool, and I'm glad that they've been popular and they've been helpful to people. I've always had kind of a bone to pick with them. And, and, and I feel like I'm not a huge fan of the WWJD bracelets. And the reason is this. I believe that it asks the wrong question. It seems to suggest somehow that Jesus is detached from our reality. What would Jesus do? Like he's not here. Look, the reality of the gospel in John 16 is this. Jesus Christ says, it's better for you that I should go, because if I go, then the helper's going to come. The counselor's going to come. The spirit's going to come. We have access to God through the Holy Spirit. And so we don't need to think about, well, I wish God was around. What would Jesus do? No, he's here. He's present. Not only that, we don't have to imagine what Jesus would do. We don't have to sit and think, oh, I wonder what Jesus would do. We have the word of God. It's spelled out for us in the Gospels. And right now, this passage right here gives us clarity. It, it gives us exact, uh, an exact sense of how Jesus acted and how he thought. So you ready for this? You want your answer to what would Jesus do? I believe it's right here. Let's read it again. You heard Gideon read it earlier. Verses 5 through 11. This is the heart of this series we're in. This is it. This is the be like Jesus moment. Catch this. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I want to stop there for a moment. This is thought to be an early church hymn. You know how we sing hymns in the church? This is thought to be an early church hymn. That's why if you look in your, your hard copy of the Bible, you'll see it's written like poetry. It's not written like the rest of the surrounding verses. It's, it's presented a little differently. That's because it's thought to be an early church hymn. It's theologically rich. It's, it's lyrically uh, beautiful, much like the hymns. And it gives us this, this clarity, this precision to which we know Jesus. One of the things it shows us is this, the two natures of Jesus, that he is both fully God and fully human. That's what we see here. It's, it's, it's like this. God, um, there's a direct correspondence between who God is, all that God is, and who Jesus is. That's what this passage is showing us. It's not that Jesus 
is merely like God. It's not that he just appeared to be God. No, everything about Jesus fits our image of God. We're seeing the two natures described here. And then we see the, the description of man. Listen, it says that, that he uh, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Who being very nature God did not, yeah, that's where I was. Being very nature God did not consider uh, his God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the appearance of a servant. You see, Jesus didn't subtract from his divine nature. He added human nature to it. He is fully God and, human, and fully human. That's the theological richness of all this. That's an important understanding. Why is Jesus unique? Why is Christianity different than all the other world religions? Well, it's because Jesus Christ is the God-man. The God-man. And then we continue, picking back up. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see the two natures, and then you see this. There's humiliation. This is important. There's humiliation of Jesus, but there's also exaltation. The humiliation of Jesus, I mean, think of it. He became a servant. Literally, that word means slave. Jesus, who was God, became a slave is what the scripture says. They say that um, immigrants, whenever they come to a place like America, immigrants often take the menial, dirty jobs. They take the jobs that, that pay little but serve the rest of society. I mean, think about in our Pittsburgh history here. The immigrants who came here over 100 years ago, who settled, where did they get jobs? In the mills, working filthy jobs, working jobs that, that didn't pay a lot, that were dangerous, long hours. Those are the kind of jobs that immigrants take. There's a point to this. Jesus migrated from heaven. He came a long way. And, and he took on the dirty job of bearing our sins. He took on the dirty job of shedding his, his, his blood to wash away our sins. We're going to celebrate that in a moment with communion. But Jesus was exalted. I mean, he descended to the abyss through the cross. Think about it. Jesus descended to the abyss. The agony of his body. The rejection of his own people. The silence from his father. Why have you forsaken me? He went to absolute zero, but God exalted him. God raised him up. This is how we remember Jesus. That's how we celebrate him today at the table of communion. We remember that he's exalted. And so we see this humiliation. We see this exaltation in Jesus. And it reminds us of the, ac the action that we must take as people. What does the new mind look like? How do we get it? Who is our example? Well, Jesus is our example. In his humility, we see the way that we should live. You know what humility looks like? It looks like knowing the truth about yourself and embracing it. Knowing the truth about yourself and embracing it. Look, the hardest thing for some of us to say is I 
am a sinner. That might be your action step today. I am a sinner. Knowing full well who I am. And in a sense, embracing it, owning it. Saying, I am a sinner. That's what humility looks like. Nothing to boast of on our own. Nothing to, 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 to be proud about necessarily. I'll tell you this, there's nothing more incongruous in a person who says they know Jesus but lacks humility. Humility is part and parcel of the new mind of Christ. But so is sacrifice. We see reflected in the, the sacrifice of Jesus that which his death accomplished that no other death could accomplish. We cannot sacrifice like Jesus, but we can imitate his sacrifice by giving, by going, by, by serving, by suffering, by sacrificing in our own lives. What does the mind, the new mind look like? How do we get this new mind? Who's our example? I'll tell you this, we aren't born with this new mind. We're not born humble either. No one is naturally humble. In fact, we're, we're actually the opposite. We're prone to boasting ourselves, propping ourselves up. Humility, becoming a person of humility is an arduous process. It's an arduous process. George Washington, 4th of July. George Washington understood this process. It's been said that as a young man, George Washington had an enormous ego. Enormous ego. He was a social climber. He was a self-promoter. Hey, he knew he looked good in his uniform. Old George Washington. He, he, he struggled with humility. But gradually, he recognized that the more he served others, the more his success would matter. You hear that? What he realized, he had a new mind, evidently. And what he realized as he grew older and the wisdom of age may be set in is that the more he served others, the more his success would actually matter. That's product of a new mind. You know, during the Revolutionary War, I found this out this week, Washington was twice given dictatorial authority by the Continental Congress. Twice. Dictatorial authority. But he didn't abuse that power. In fact, after the war and after the triumph, he laid down his sword after achieving that great victory. Aren't we grateful for the nation for that? He didn't abuse that power. There's a story told about Washington once he became president after the Revolutionary War. He was riding horseback one day, and he and his companions came to a stone wall that they had to leap over in order to get past it. And as they did, one of the horses knocked down stones from the wall. Well, after the ride was over, this was still on Washington's mind. It bothered him that they had destroyed this wall. His companions really didn't think much about it, evidently. But he went back, and he carefully replaced the stones. He put them back in their places. And one of his friends asked him, said, why are you doing that, basically? You're too big for that. You know what I mean by too big? You're too big for that. You're George Washington. You're our great leader. And Washington's response was this. He said, on the contrary, I'm the right size. I love that. Listen, what does the new mind look like? Well, it looks something like that. 
A change of mind will mean a change of life. The change of mind will change how you live your life. Valuing others above yourself. Being unified with people, particularly within the family of God. I will give you two very specific takeaways from this message this week. The first is this. Would you this week meditate on verses 5 through 11? What Gideon read you earlier, what we've looked at right here, this, this ancient hymn, would you meditate on Would you read that? Perhaps you'll, you'll commit the entire thing to memory or a portion of it. Where, where does the new mind begin? Well, it begins with knowing Jesus. It begins with being united with him. And so this week, would you look at that passage? This is how we learn to be like Jesus. Let's meditate on him. And the second thing is this. Do something this week that puts the interest of others above your own interests. Be on the lookout for it. As you're reading that passage, as you're praying through the example of Jesus, who though he was God, became man and sacrificed himself and put the needs of others before his own, would you follow his example and look for opportunities, at least one opportunity during the course of the week to put the interest of someone else before your own? Let's be like Jesus. I know this. We cannot do this without God's help. And so let's go to him in prayer right now and ask the Lord to help us with this incredible task that's set before us. Lord, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice that though he, being God, did not consider that to be something to be grasped, but actually he relinquished that in the sense that he became man. And being made a man, he sacrificed himself on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for the love of Jesus. It's a love that has no variation. I pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage, that each of us would have the mind of Jesus, that we wouldn't live mindlessly, Forgive us, Lord, for living mindlessly. I pray, Lord, that as we live in community with each other, as we grow in love for one another, as we learn to put the needs of others before ourselves, that we would have the mind of Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would unite us with him. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never made that step, Today's the day. This is the opportunity to say I'm tired and I'm done with mindless living. I don't want to live mindlessly anymore. It's done its toll on me. I pray, Lord, that that, that person would adopt these words as his or her own and say I want to repent of my sins. I'm a sinner. There I said it. And I need Jesus. Lord, I want to turn in a new direction, live in a new way. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died to pay for our sins. And I believe he rose again. Lord, give me this new mind. Oh Lord, unite us with Christ. Help us to live 
by your Holy Spirit for him and for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.